Welcome to the Leadership Playbook, the show where successful leaders share what they learn to get to where they are. This podcast is an offshoot of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. And it's brought to you by RSMUS LLP, the nation's leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on the middle market. I'm your host, Joe Phillips, the Dean of Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics. Our guest on this episode of the Leadership Playbook is Kevin DePew, Deputy Chief Economist and Industry Analyst Program Leader at RSM US. Kevin works with RSM's Chief Economists and US, Canadian, and UK economists to provide their clients with the macroeconomic and industry insights they need to successfully manage their middle market businesses. In addition to overseeing a team of industry analysts, he is responsible for creating RSM's flagship monthly publication. The Real Economy. Its Canadian counterpart, The Real Economy Canada, and The Real Economy Industry Outlook. We have Kevin here today to share his insights on the state of the domestic and global economies, what's happening these days at the Federal Reserve, and whether or not a recession is in the cards for 2024. So thanks so much, Kevin, for joining us. I'm going to start out with the first question, which is about the recession. Are we going to see a recession or not? Did we dodge a recession or will we eventually succumb to one? What do you think? Well, let me start by saying, well, first of all, thanks for for having me. But let me start with this question by going back in time a little bit. I've been in the economics industry, financial services industry long enough to remember when it was actually difficult to forecast a recession. And I think over the last 20 years, we might have forgotten that a little bit just because of the magnitude of the two most recent recessions, which were frankly not really recessions at all. They were one was a structural economic crisis, and the other was obviously a, a global public health emergency. But both of them were all hands on deck, everything stops at once. And so now we're at a point in the cycle where we've had a little over 500 basis points of interest rate increases that the economy is, is trying to digest. And meanwhile, for I think going on. Uh, 14, 15 months now, I have not been able to turn on any kind of financial media without someone telling me that we're in recession right now. And they've been saying that for over a year. So our model, such that it is, and there's no saying that all models are bad, some are actually useful. I didn't come up with that, but I I do tend to agree with it. Our model is a 60% probability of recession within the next 12 months. That's down. A year ago, we were at 85%. And then if you think about a year ago, we had those back-to-back quarters that are negative GDP growth, which the media typically defines as a recession, but we didn't get one. And so, you know, going back to our past experiences, it was actually difficult to forecast recessions in the 80s and 90s when, when I was uh, entering uh, the workforce. And the reason for that is that most recessions are not all hands on deck, everything stops at once collapses, which just happen to be our most recent experiences, that most of the time they're what you would call asynchronous. So we've already had a little bit of that with if you are in manufacturing specifically, or if you are in the consumer goods ecosystem that feeds into real estate, residential real estate, or if you are in commercial real estate in the office space. Well, certainly for the past year, it has felt like a recession to you. And it probably has been in those three areas. But we just have not seen enough of a spillover, and that's due to a couple of things. One is we believe the consumer in the aggregate, 
the consumer in the aggregate has had what began after the pandemic, a little over $2 trillion in what we could call excess savings. Now that most of that was accumulated as some of it was stimulus, obviously, but the bulk of it was simply the, the inability to spend anywhere in the economy. So these savings services economy was shut down. These savings just built up. So now that's, that's down well below 600 billion. I think we'll probably by the autumn, once we get closer to the holiday season, probably exhaust that. But that doesn't mean that the consumers are in bad shape. In the aggregate, they have very low household debt service ratios, very low debt to income ratios, and you have a near 50-year low in unemployment. So all of that supports a consumer economy. And it doesn't mean that the consumer has to go spend willy-nilly. We have not seen that. Instead, it just means that there is enough firepower for the consumer to be able to help us navigate a slowdown in the economy. The other mitigating factor is that we've had about 15 years of underinvestment in CapEx. And so we think that once there is some price stability, the Fed is able to declare victory on the acute bout of inflation, that we may not get a full-blown recession. There's still a 40% chance based on the model alone that we don't. And so we think that that CapEx, which was missing in the recovery from the Great Recession, and was one of the reasons that even though consumers continued to spend, that the economy didn't really fire on all cylinders, we think we're in a different ballgame now. And we're likely to see something that if it is a recession, it probably looks something closer to the recessions in the, uh, the recession in the, in the early 90s. Six to eight months, Fed may engage in maybe 100, 125 basis points of, of policy rate normalization. And then you're at a Fed funds rate of three and a half to four percent and the economy restarts. So that's a long-winded way of saying uh, that we don't think a recession is guaranteed. And what makes it challenging is that this is not, again, that all hands on deck, everything stops at once type of recession, even if we do get it. Very asynchronous. Fed Chair Jerome Powell has, has talked about the non-linearity in the economy. And I think that this is an expression of that, that it's very challenging to draw one-to-one conclusions or linear conclusions about consumer spending. There is no quote-unquote the consumer. It's very segmented and fragmented. So all of that goes to make it very challenging to identify the start of a recession other than in the way the NBER would, which is you look at the lagged data, and which is typically why they would declare a recession around the time that we're starting to come out. It's not anything that's endemic to the NBER and their methodology. It's just a reality that the data lags. And by the time we get to something that could be identified as a recession, it's probably uh, about. Okay, so odds are there's still going to be a recession, uh, according to your model. But if we do dodge one, it's not so much the consumer sector that's going to carry us through. It's other sectors like business investment is what you're, you're telling us, right? Yeah, I think that is the, the business investment will be a mitigating factor. You have not only the, the installation phase of technology that will be necessary to leverage things like generative artificial intelligence, uh, but you have that underinvestment over that 15-year period. And there's got to be some catch-up that happens. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're anticipating. And I think that once you get to price stability in the economy, that that will equate with price visibility on the part of businesses. And so that will reduce some of the uncertainty in and of itself. It's very challenging to make a long-term CapEx decision when you're not sure if if two-year yields are going to be 5% 12 months from now or 7. So 
I, I do sympathize with business executives that have to make those decisions right now. It's a very challenging time. But once we get through this, it's a little more visibility, then I think you'll see that CapEx, those intentions uh, start to ratchet up, particularly in the middle market, which is typically one of the laggards in uh, spending on CapEx versus, say, the Fortune 500. Right. And in all that, the Federal Reserve, of course, has been working hard to slow things down. And you mentioned their rate increases. And you said if inflation starts to stabilize a level they get comfortable with, they will start lowering rates a little bit. And that will kind of help with getting us through if, in fact, we get a recession, right? That's correct. And my perception is that the Fed has done a very nice job of walking this tightrope between damping economic growth too much and also acting very decisively to slow inflation. I know that Chairman Powell was criticized widely when he made the remarks a little over a year ago about inflation being transitory. What I would note is that from an economist's perspective, it has been transitory. We see that on the good side. Uh, we're actively seeing some disinflation that's happening in consumer goods. So, you know, I think the difference between what the media portrays those comments or what financial markets in particular, how they view those comments, you know, anytime if, if stocks go down 8%, then we're in a recession automatically is what financial markets would tell you, the financial market participants, but it doesn't really work that way. So as you see it, the Fed has threaded the needle, not too much in the way of interest rate increases, but enough to get us to where we have a chance to get through without a recession, without excessive inflation. What I would say is that that is not a guarantee going forward because what we've identified as pretty significant regime change in three areas, globalization, growth, and liquidity. So the area that the Fed has the most impact on in the near term is going to be on liquidity. And certainly you see that with financial conditions tightening. You see that just uh, with uh, senior loan officer opinion surveys that indicate credit is tightening in the economy. There's still a little bit of room to run for there. And it's a little bit of haves versus have nots. If it's the old saying that if you desperately need capital, there's not any available, or there's not any available at a rate that is, is satisfactory for you. If you don't need it, then it's probably available, and, and but you don't need it. <laughs> so it's kind of that rock and a hard place that we're in right now. With the, and I think that that's going to be problematic, these regime changes going forward. I do not believe that we're going back to a world where it is a challenge to get inflation up to the Fed's core PCE 2% target. I think we're going to be in a regime where it's very challenging for the Fed to keep inflation reined in below core PCE of 3%. And that path is not well-defined yet. So I, I'm, I don't think the work is finished. I think the work in meeting the demands of acute inflation, June 2022, when you had 9.1% uh, headline inflation, that the Fed did uh, a very nice job of eliminating or at least reducing the risks from that kind of acute inflation in the economy. I don't think the path is going to be as easy going forward longer term. And I don't, I, I don't get the sense that financial markets have really caught up to what these regime changes around globalization, growth, and liquidity really mean. And the last 25 years is not the playbook to view the next 25 years through. I think we have to go back and look at something that is a little bit different than, than what our experience has been. And that's, that's it itself poses a challenge. If you've been in the business world as a decision maker for 20 years, that is a really long-term track record. 
but that is going to be insufficient to meet the demands of what the next 20 years are going to look like that experience so there has to be a revisiting of what the playbook is going to look like for businesses going forward and i think that's true on the at the federal reserve as well that it's you're you're no longer in the regime where if there is any kind of shortfall of demand in the economy that central banks rush to to lower interest rates to help boost it i think price stability is probably going to take up much more of the feds and other central banks around the world their attention simply because of that that regime change affecting growth uh, globalization and liquidity yeah when inflation started to raise its ugly head one of the critiques was the federal reserve had gone crazy and increased the money supply excessively over a long period of time and attributed that to what the Fed was doing in the way of quantitative easing. So could you talk a little bit about quantitative easing, tell our listeners what it was and, and how the Fed is kind of in the process of trying to unwind that and how that may make it even more complicated on top of what you've already explained? Sure. So quantitative easing is essentially a a non-conventional monetary policy tool that the Fed would use under conditions of fighting deflation. And that's really where we were after the great financial crisis in the wake of that, where you know it's not enough to make credit available, and, and the Fed can do that indirectly by lowering the Fed funds rate. You have to have credit demand in the economy, and under conditions of deflation and uncertainty, mass unemployment, it's very challenging for traditional monetary policy to be able to stimulate the economy. So in quantitative easing, essentially the, the Fed's going to buy, in the case of the great financial crisis, they'll buy uh, mortgage-backed securities, stress securities on the balance sheets, essentially creating sort of a, a good bank, bad bank model. And that has the effect of increasing the money supply and lowering interest rates. We've had negative real rates for quite some time and are only now just starting to, to move away from negative real rates. And all of that is a way to encourage lending and investment in the economy when your standard monetary policy tools no longer work. And that's really where we were in the wake of the great financial crisis, the, the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. I would argue that there were many, many similarities between the great financial crisis and the Great Depression. The confusing thing is that, well, we didn't you know, we didn't have bread loans. We didn't see the kind of deprivation that we had in the Great Depression in the GFC. And the reason is because we spent many, many decades creating additional safety layers as a result of the Great Depression so that we wouldn't have that kind of deprivation again. I, I think that instead of red lines, we had microwave ovens and ramen noodles. And that was the trade-off over the course of decades of, of creating a much uh, broader safety net for people in the economy. So, you know, I guess, you know, having said all that, I, I think one of the things that goes to that regime change around liquidity is quantitative easing, ending, quantitative tightening, beginning that itself, letting those securities mature and roll off the balance sheet adds another layer of economic tightening. And that goes directly to liquidity constraints and access to capital in the economy. So I have a couple of things going on. One is in order to maintain price stability, the Fed has raised rates and will have to keep rates elevated for we don't know yet how long. So interest rate and cost of capital is going to be higher. It's going to be less available. And all of those things are a challenge to the way the economy developed really over the last 25 years. And under conditions of zero interest rates, there are many businesses that probably shouldn't have been started and may not be viable. 
and are running into the limits of being able to access capital to continue going when you're not showing any any profitability. So it's no longer about revenue generation. It's about how profitable can you be? How how can you maintain your margins? That's a different kind of economy than the one that we've been in over the last 25 years. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. So I want to switch gears a little bit. You know, most of our discussion up till now has been kind of about the business cycle, whether we're going to have a recession or not. But let's take a kind of a longer term view of our economy. What do you think are the key longer term forces that are going to impact economic growth and the standard of living in our society over the next couple of decades? How are, how are you looking at that? To start off, I, I would say that this is really, in, in my career, the third technological structural change that we've had. If you go back to, say, 1990 and the introduction of the Microsoft suite of products, well, it had a tremendous impact on the business world. And then you fast forward to early 2000s, the ability to utilize and scale networking technologies, the introduction of mobile devices, which integrated a lot of a lot of office technology into your smartphone, that this wrapper that we've been able to put around generative AI and large language models to be able to essentially take a, a lot of, of data and through generative AI start to get to a point where we can increase productivity that this is longer term going to be something that is very impactful in the economy. It will translate into productivity gains, we believe, longer term. We just think the financial markets are getting a little bit ahead of themselves and and how those productivity gains are going to be realized. So, you know, we've been in a long period and this concerned central bankers going back down Greenspan. Why are we not seeing productivity gains based on the internet, for example? And I, I remember very well in the, in the late 90s that, you know, all of those, those dot-com companies that many of which went out of business, all the things they promised us came true. We are today utilizing and leveraging everything that people talked about. The financial market's ability to digest that in the near term, that didn't happen, obviously. So it's taken, uh, the path has been, I don't want to say unpredictable, but it's been not as people imagined. And I think we're in a similar state with generative AI and large language models where, you know, this is still the, the former ideal economist, Martin Fleming has a, a terrific book out that's called Breakthrough Growth. And he talks very much, uh, talks explicitly about the installation stage for new technologies versus the deployment stage. And I think with generative AI that I agree with Mr. Fleming that this is still more an installation stage. And in order to achieve the economic growth potential and the productivity gains, you have to get to the deployment stage. And so, you know, I, I know that generative AI will continue to be a buzzword. We're sort of in a speculative frenzy now. Any firm that announces that they have anything to do with uh, artificial intelligence, even if it's a supermarket chain, which has basically been using artificial intelligence for pricing and, and supply chain considerations for many, many years that we're at a point where people are, oh, well, I have to invest in that right away. So I think longer term, what we're looking at is that this is an important secular change. Generative AI is going to be key to helping boost some of the productivity that's been lacking in the last 25 years. 
And particularly when you think about the deployment of that type of technology across seven plus billion smartphones, it will have an impact. I just don't think it's going to have the financial impact that, or have the impact that financial markets are pricing in for the next couple of quarters. But if we're looking out longer than the next few quarters, which many on Wall Street are, are loath to do, then I think you're talking about something that will be significant, but it's not going to unfold in the very linear fashion that it's being priced into certain securities right now. Yes, I totally agree. I mean, it's very exciting, but who knows what it's going to amount to. And it's going to take a while for things to really sort out. And as you said, go from installation to uh, deployment. You know, Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, he, he's been thinking about AI and making statements about AI. He made a statement in July that it's the fourth big technology wave. And it's not just the most important development in our lifetime, but the most important in any lifetime. So it's something that we all have to pay attention to, but as you said, not get ahead of ourselves around it. Let's talk about the global economy. We focused on the U.S. a bit. What, what are you seeing in other parts of the world in terms of their level of economic activity, whether that's in Europe, China, Latin America? What's your take on that part of the world? Yeah, so uh, you know we're in a period of I, I wouldn't call it deglobalization. I, I think that word is is used too too much and overstates it. We refer to it as as regionalization or reglobalization, where you know partly because of some of the experiences around supply chains during the pandemic, partly because of the U.S. and China tensions over Taiwan partly because of the need to be able to exercise more control over industries and the production of goods that relate to national defense. So whether we're talking about semiconductor chips or, or other things that feed into that, that defense ecosystem, that reglobalization for goods is something that is impacting all areas of the globe. So you see that currently with some of the slowdown that's happening in China because of their own issues domestically. But other areas are, are doing quite well as a result of that. And I don't want to say it's at the expense of China necessarily, but it is related to this reglobalization as capital looks for other places of growth in the, in the global economy. So places like India, for example, which uh, continues to be a powerhouse, parts of South America that have already engaged in fiscal reforms are seeing the benefits of there. It's not uniform. But we are seeing some of that. And, you know, especially if you consider the valuation of U.S. equities uh, at this point, that it probably makes sense to start to be looking at other parts of the world. Now, in terms of the economic conditions, you have this in developed economies, largely a lack of labor supply because of the aging demographics. And so where are we going to get the labor? Uh, there's no, you know, we were fortunate around the turn of the century when millennials were entering the workforce en masse, the largest cohort in the US since the baby boomers, that really allowed us to maintain fairly low wage growth over that period. And you essentially, as an employer, had your choice of, of who to hire. And those conditions have changed, and not just in the US, those conditions have changed in, in developed economies around the world. So looking at areas where there are younger populations, I think we'll probably continue to see the globalization or of digitalization accelerate and of services move even more rapidly while at the same time we're getting that that re-globalization and regionalization for the production of goods 
So all those have a couple of consequences that in the global economy longer term, we're going to have to think about. The first is that the wage growth that most businesses have in the US became accustomed to, and in, in Europe as well, over the last 15 years, 20 years, we are likely to reset at a higher level. So talent is going to be more expensive. It's going to be harder to hold on to. And all those things are going to necessitate some firm level changes in, in pricing for labor. So, you know, I, I think that, that it's, it's an interesting time. <laughs> and, you know, again, I go back to the, the next 25 years are not going to look at all like the last 25 years. And especially when you look at globalization and, and growth, and I think this transition to something around the world that is more of a fiscal policy driven approach, not just in the US, but globally, that that is going to be a significant difference than what was a monetary policy led regime prior to that, where, you know, again, if you have any kind of uh, slowdown in any of the global economies, Japan, China, Europe, doesn't matter, that it was up to the central banks to stimulate demand by lowering interest rates. And over that 40-year period, on a rolling 10-year basis, 1980 to roughly 2020, every 10-year rolling period, you look back, interest rates are higher 10 years ago than they were today. So we're not going to be in that environment. And so all of this necessitates a rethinking of what happens when fiscal policy around the world becomes more dominant. Well, it tends to be inflationary. So again, central banks under conditions where they are uh, forced to, to pay more attention to price stability, that creates some underlying tensions in the economies between price stability and inflationary things like industrial policies. So it's not just the US that's engaging in things like the CHIPS Act or the Inflation Reduction Act. Europe is doing the same thing. Other parts of the world are engaging in similar fiscal policies. And that's going to be a much different effect. Now, the, the upside to that is that unlike monetary policy, which acts with a significant lag, at least 12 to 14 months, uh, hence Milton Friedman's long and variable lag uh, description of it, that fiscal policy has a high multiplier effect and it goes directly into the economy today. So you see that with things like in the current environment, the, the boom in construction, which is related to both the Inflation Reduction Act and CHIPS Act. You will see it with everything from EV charging stations and the deployment of those to semiconductor chips and fabrication plants and, and all the all the things that longer term will start to to change the way we experience economic growth. And I think it's going to be near term for the better, but that is dependent of, upon central banks' ability to stand up to what should be a higher inflation environment longer term. This doesn't mean we're going to have the acute inflation of 2022. It just means that, you know, instead of the last 15 years where we were struggling to get inflation up to target, we're going to spend the next 15 years where it's going to be more of a challenge to get inflation down to target. And so I'm not optimistic that we'll be able to actually get 2% for PCE on a sustained basis under these conditions. I think it's, I don't know that the Fed in the near term will adjust their 2% target. But I think that is a probability longer term as they confront the reality of price stability in the face of a lot of activities that are raising the floor of the cost of production. So it's, it's going to be a challenging time. But I think it also is going to be one that is where we see economic growth that, that continually surprises to the upside. Now, you mentioned the kind of the rise of fiscal policy. 
Are you seeing that on both sides of the coin in terms of tax policy and spending policy, or is it more around one or the other? I think it, it will have to be both sides of the coin. And uh, to me, this is the, all the things that I would say, even in the Inflation Reduction Act, that I know that these are characterized as in the media, it's, it's quote unquote Bidenomics, and that's a convenient uh, descriptor for somebody who's, who's running for office when the economy's outperforming and it's more resilient than what critics have, have expected it to be. But I think these are bipartisan topics that the winners and losers in the composition will change, but the mechanisms for choosing those winners and losers, which is industrial policy, fiscal policy, that those mechanics are still going to be in place. We've been in a long period where that type of fiscal policy has been dormant. And you know, I think that, that it's awoken. And, and now that the experience even in, you know, in the Trump administration around the pandemic, direct income support, very unusual in the United States, but, you know, obviously, a, 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 you know, a very unusual time that hopefully we won't experience again. But, you know, I don't want to say that's responsible for this new view, but I think it's, it's related to it. So without any causality there, I think uh, we've discovered that, oh, you know what? Well, if there is an economic crisis that's serious enough, then we can break some of our quietly held rules around direct income support to households. And, you know, as we become more technologically proficient, we'll probably become better at identifying how to engage in those outlays in a way that both damps inflation and also prevents some of the criticisms around, well, you know, you have people that get paycheck protection program loans that don't need them and they'd like to pay them back and and all these other issues that, that you know, when you engage in that kind of massive income support become problematic. I'm going to go back to something else you mentioned when you're talking about the global economy, which is India. Is it out of the question to think that at some point India becomes a more prominent trading partner for the U.S. than China? No, it's not. In fact, I would say on the services side, it is, is very much, it's already happened. From a, a goods trading standpoint, you know, again, uh, under conditions of, of regionalization, reglobalization, we want to have things a little closer to home, and that's true not just in the U.S. It's true for you know Europe, Canada, Mexico. So, but yeah, I think that it's not out of the question at all. I think that's that's a that's a, a, that's a strong likelihood. Kevin, thanks so much for being with us today on Leadership Playbook. Really appreciate your insights on our economy, both domestic and global and going forward, what the prospects are for recession, inflation, and improved standard of living. So appreciate you being with us, Kevin DePew from RSM. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Leadership Playbook, the podcast edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series at Seattle University. If you enjoyed what you heard today, Consider telling a friend and give us a good rating on iTunes. You can subscribe to our show for free on your favorite podcast app or find us online at leadershipplaybook.org. Find out who our next guests are by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Joe Phillips, the Dean of the Albers School of Business and Economics. Thanks for listening.